is Graham Lynch. Welcome to Comms Day Live. Um, today, we'll be talking with Rosemary Sinclair from the .au Domain Administration and also uh, two visiting senior vice presidents from Cradle Point. Um, it's the American-based unit of Ericsson that specialises in wireless WAN platforms. First up, I wanted to play an excerpt of a speech that has absolutely nothing to do with telecommunications, but I thought it was particularly relevant to a lot of the subjects that we deal with here at Comms Day Live. Now, you may have heard of Matt Barry. He's the founder and CEO of Freelancer.com, one of the world's most successful dot-com companies in that particular market vertical. And he gave a speech this week to the Sydney Morning Herald's um, summit uh, dealing with the future of Sydney going out over the next 25 years. And uh, it, 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 the keynote wasn't very widely reported because it was, it was pretty out there. You know, he, he, he drew together all sorts of interesting strands of analysis, um, ranging from things such as the property bubble to the Australian banking system to an, an immigration um, uh, system that he feels is, is uh, badly damaged um, through to skills misalignments, through to bad planning laws and even complex award systems, all framed around the notion of why is it so hard to get a restaurant meal in Sydney after 9pm. But the, the bit of the speech that I thought was interesting for Comms Day Live was when he, he, he talked about all the issues regarding um, people who work in, say, cafes and the difficulties they have in simply affording to live in Sydney and talked about the impact that artificial intelligence was going to have on the labour force in the future. I thought he had some very, very interesting observations um, and particularly in view of what he actually does and where he comes from. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. ChatGPT had 100 million users in two months, the fastest in history. It currently scores in the top 1% for verbal in the GRE for US grad school, the top 7% in the SAT for undergrad, top 10% in uniform bar exam, top 12% in the LSAT, and top 15% in advanced placement, statistics, art history, psychology, and biology. Every day the AI sucks down more data and every day they're getting smarter. Where it fails for now is what we perceive as creativity. It's hard to get ChatGPT to crack a joke that isn't a dad joke, but as we give it more data, we're seeing more intelligent behaviours that we don't understand and we didn't predict. Scientists are wondering if we're starting to see sparks of artificial general intelligence, creativity, heart and soul might just emerge. The next biggest job for migrants is being a GP and not that we'll need many soon with ChatGPT. The 8% of the population trying to wangle a Valium oxycodone will be happy to hear about that. A study comparing ChatGPT to, to GPs saw patients preferring the AI 79% of the time with responses four times longer, four times better quality and 10 times more empathetic. Motor mechanics will follow with electric vehicles we need less of and accountants, I still feel sorry for accountants because together with OnlyFans models, AI is going to wipe them out. Half of white collar admin jobs will go and accounting is rules based. There's no room for creativity or for being creative, the government doesn't like it. Half of lawyers are next with the exception of deal-making or Charles Water Street theatricals, most, of drafting, most is drafting and ChatGPT can do it better. Instead of paying a lawyer $1,200 an hour in six-minute increments, ChatGPT can write an argument, a letter, patents, research, explain a case, file a suit, or fight your parking ticket in seconds for free. Minter Ellison, Australia's largest law firm, panicked first. Many of our clients are really, have really been grappling with the question of whether billable hours are the best way to measure our value as professional advisors. Le jeu sont fait. The game is up. Wads of legal bills annotated with read email, pull out template, edit, 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 pretend I did something, teleconference with partner, reply to email are over. 
frankly, software and uh, is even uh, will be next and even more amenable to LLMs. I told my engineers there's a chance in the next 12 months they won't be running code anymore, at least not like now. They'll move up the stack and be more like producers, product managers, or directors. Mass layoffs are coming. We're going to see the same social displacement and upheaval that the mechanisation of agriculture caused in the 18th and 19th centuries and the mechanisation of manufacturing caused in the 20th century. Only this time it's with the intellectual classes. The first contributed to the long depression of the 1870s and the latter led to the great depression of the 1920s. The higher paying the job, the more vulnerable it is. IBM just announced that it's gonna stop hiring and 8,000 jobs in the next five years will be replaced by AI, including 30% of all non-customer facing roles. Education, our fifth biggest export, will be heavily impacted. Researchers have found that 19 of 30 jobs, most the top 19 of 30 jobs most likely to be wiped out are post-secondary teaching. AI can already develop a curriculum better, personalised to a student's strengths, weaknesses and learning style. You can now chat to a textbook as if it was a professor. Check the textbook company saw their stock fall 48% when they admitted ChatGPT was affecting their business. This might cause a problem in maintaining Australia's scientific edge, giving teaching cross-funds research. But the bulk of immigration is not for that, or for entrepreneurs that create jobs rather than take jobs. It's designed for serving as coffees and to keep the bubble alive. Yet it's almost impossible to get a meal in Sydney after nine. So that's Matt Barry uh, from freelancer.com talking about the impact that artificial intelligence may have on the labor force. And particularly interesting if you're in a telco, where AI is definitely gonna have a profound effect sooner than later. Now, moving on. Now, I don't, I don't know about you. I, I started a business in Australia at about the same time as the internet started. And one of the things I always coveted was a domain name um, on the highest level, i.e. .com. Um, the .com.au thing, um, I felt diminished uh, my appeal as a company. But I was wrong. <laughs> a new survey has been conducted by the .au Domain Administration that shows that far far from a .com by itself domain conveying some kind of international status, 76% of people in Australia are more likely to trust a company that has the .au in it. It's, I guess it's perceived as um, being sort of more locally trustworthy and accessible. So to find out about this survey, I spoke with Rosemary Sinclair, who's the CEO of the .au Domain Administration. Yeah, so the, so the survey really um, comes from the fact that we are really focused in our work on creating value for Australians around the internet. It would be really easy for us to think of the task as being a technical task, running the domain name system, or a licensing rules compliance task. But we work very hard to make sure that we're focused on what all this means for Australians and what it means beneficially. So trying to find out where Australians see and find value from .au is the core reason that we did it. And we were highly delighted, Graham, to find out that Australians do understand that .au is a trusted signifier, uh, that by comparison with other ways of doing things, .au is chosen by Australians because of that sense of trustworthiness and credibility and reliability. 
um, and chosen on both sides. That's what was really interesting, uh, chosen by people using domain names uh, and checking websites and so on, but also chosen by Australian businesses who know that Australian consumers um, identify .au as a trustworthy uh, uh, signifier. Now, going even further, um, the AU Domain Administration last year introduced what they call a direct domain. So you get rid of the .com, it's just a direct .au. We actually spoke about this at the time um, with Rosemary when it was launched. Now, they launched this and they had, they had an expectation that it might account for, say, 5% of registrations in the first year. But it zoomed right past that and, and got to 18% of registrations as of uh, the end of March, which is um, way, way, way over original projections. So I asked Rosemary about that as well. Well, um, we think that we came into the market with an innovation that was just right on the money. And of course, we were in the market uh, around the time of the pandemic, where we're using the internet um, to degrees that they had never done before. And one of the little indicators we saw was about 200,000 Australian businesses that had never had a website suddenly found that they needed a domain name. So we were just uh, right at the right time with an innovation around a new namespace. And what we've seen um, is great take up. In fact, you're absolutely right. We thought it would be about 5% of the total name space. Uh, it's 18% of the domain. So a very rapid take up. Reminded me uh, of the take up of mobile phones by Australians. You know, once things got sorted out, that S curve just went roaring perpendicularly. And that's really what we feel has happened here. So it's it's the innovative choice uh, that has really met the needs of Australians. And it's backed up by such interesting and unexpected uh, data source, such as the Australian Bureau of Statistics, because I'm always looking for confirmatory data about what's going on. And uh, they've released a report about digital activity in Australia that shows that digital activity continues to grow in terms of contribution to the economy. But interestingly enough, we're creeping up the stack. So we're going from equipment uh, to software to hardware up to applications. And now the um, main driver of value adding to the economy is e-commerce-retail. So it's people using all of the elements of the communications and internet technologies to actually do things that they want to do. And through that, make an, uh, a contribution to the economy. So it's, you know, it, it's just the, the right um, choice at the right time, really. I think that's, that's the core of its success. Okay, well, what's interesting about that is that for the last decade or so, I'm pretty sure that Australia has been tops in the world for domain registrations per capita. So the fact that a new um, category can come out and achieve success so quickly, which presumably is only um, added uh, to that ranking, um, is, is pretty amazing stuff. Um, and, and, and as Rosemary indicated there, a pretty good sign of how advanced we are as a digital economy.
Now, moving on, uh, finally, um, Cradle Point. Um, they're the company uh, out of Boise, Idaho, uh, bought by Ericsson a couple of years back, specializing in wireless uh, WANs, um, which obviously is an emerging category. And, and what's, what's particularly interesting in their particular market is the emergence of 5G network slicing. So obviously, it's moving... Um, a big focus of enterprise towards wireless, and this plays straight into um, the sweet spot for what Cradlepoint does. So that we, we had two visiting um, senior vice presidents from Cradlepoint out in Australia uh, last week, um, Lindsay Notwell and Lisa Guest. We, we had a, a long chat with them. I just wanted to excerpt a part of that, that chat. First of all, of Lindsay, talking about, I guess, his contention that 5G slicing is actually a very good thing for telcos because it may, may allow them to get some of the value back that, that they perhaps lost um, with the advent of SD-WAN about a decade ago. Let's, let's hear from what Lindsay had to say. If I rewind the clock to, say, 2013, then um, if, a, if an enterprise wanted to, to order some sort of a secure managed circuit, they would call their Telstra, Optus, whomever, and they would do that because that was by and large the big, you know, the, the only choice. And so along in 2014 came a lot of the SD-WAN players. And really, if you think about it, it was a disintermediation uh, of the operators because now I could buy cheap broadband and, you know, use SD-WAN to marry that together and so on and so forth. So strategically, from an operator perspective, they lost a lot of market power. Uh, at that point, because, you know, they were no longer a, a, a monopoly of sorts, if you will, or an oligopoly. But um, that became a bit of a, a challenge over time, uh, because even now, and I find this quite ironic, is that when we talk to operators, they're pushing those same solutions, those same vendors who disintermediated them, which, you know, a little bit of irony there. But what we see in 5G and in particular slicing and a number of other capabilities that will come along as part of 5G, um, it really provides the potential of giving that market power back to the operators. And you say, well, well why? You know, SD-WAN players aren't going to go away. You're right, they're not. But what has happened, is, especially in COVID, but we've seen this evolution over the last, say, you know, 70 years, where businesses are uh, being pressured, whether it's because of economics or you know a global pandemic, to change how they do business. And a lot of their, um, their employees are getting closer to their customers and working from home and doing a, an office that's actually in their vehicle, quite frankly. Uh, and they need the same kind of manageability, security, and control that they do in any other office. You know, we call that a branch of one or the mobile office. So what, and, you, and of course you can't do that with a wire. You can't, you know, attach fiber to the vehicle. And so what we've done with slicing is we've, and, and 5G in particular is we've recognized this, uh, our CEO calls it or says uh, anything that can be wireless will be wireless. You know, if you think about the LAN, it's, it's really that way there's really not a lot of difference in the WAN. I mean, it's not like fiber's going to disappear, but copper certainly is. And so as we see that, what we're doing is providing a tool set to operators to be able to deliver those kinds of customer experiences in those new age environments and get a bit of that market power back. 
Okay, now um, I also asked uh, Lisa Guess, who was accompanying Lindsay on their trip to Australia, um, what she saw in terms of the Australian marketplace and some of the customers they spoke to while they were out here. I, here's, I was surprised. We found a lot of enterprise customers pushing the carriers to do yes. more with yes. very fascinating use cases, such as content delivery to movie theaters. Mm-hmm. You know, let's get rid of the encrypted servers and now I can very flexibly deliver content. You know, that they're giving carriers ideas of services they could offer. And that yeah. that's, well, it's a small service, it's not a niche. Things like filming live action reality shows out in the middle of nowhere and you want to get your video either up to social media, mm-hmm. off to editing, wherever, using wireless. And even a, a mainstream customer that's very large retail looking to go primary wireless in in their you know their stores and also looking to even do private networking in warehouses okay well that's quite a point lisa guess and uh lindsay notwell visiting from the united states and that's it for comms day live this week we'll be back soon take care